You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I am here today with Luigi Zingales, who is a professor at University of Chicago Booth School of Business, visiting MIT this year. And he is also the author of this book right here, A Capitalism for the People, Recapturing the Lost Genius of American Prosperity. Also the co-author of a book with uh, Raghu Rajan called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists, which I could not find my copy, but I recall fondly reading that book. And also now has a podcast. We all have to have podcasts now, and it's called Capital Isn't, which explores kind of when capitalism works and when it doesn't. I should mention also there's a massive amount of academic research that I think is highly important and highly influential, which sits behind both of these books, but also these books barely scratch the surface of the depth and breadth of what you're doing. So welcome, Luigi. My pleasure to be on the show. So I want to start, as you do, in this book, which this book is about a decade old now, and so I'm really interested in hearing about how your thoughts have changed or how you see recent developments illustrating or confounding your arguments. But I want to start where you began in this book, which is when you came to the United States, right? So you were raised in Italy and you decided to switch and come to America for your graduate studies. And in the book, you, you spent a lot of time talking about the kind of unique promise of America and what makes it distinct. Before we you start talking about some of the problems and obstacles that need to be overcome and remedied. We really talk about how the United States is in many ways still the ideal for people who are looking towards a meritocratic organization of society. So can you talk a bit about what is it that makes America unique or at least particularly good at certain aspects of what we're looking for in a society? So let me start to, since the book starts with a little bit of a biographical note, uh, let me tell you a little bit of my biographical story. My mother and my father, they are same age. They came to age and they started dating around the time in which Venice, the town where they uh, lived at the time, was liberated by the Americans. And so for America always represented freedom, represented the dream. And my father got a degree in engineering and wanted actually to come and study in the United States. I think he had got already an admission, at least for a, some postgraduate studies at MIT. And then his father passed away and he had to stay back and take care of his younger children. And so he never came to study in the United States. So I grew up with a myth of American, the land of the free, and also the place, the dream, of my father, not to echo somebody else. And I think that uh, when I came here, I think that I certainly satisfied my dream, but in part, I satisfy also my father's dream. And there does seem to be something about the United States, and I think you use Italy. You frequently make reference to Italy when you're talking about crony capitalism, when you're talking about nepotism, right? I mean, sometimes Italy ha becomes the kind of flogging a character for all of these things because you know it so well. And Italy certainly isn't the worst exemplar of these things. But if you were to highlight why it is that the United States has, at least for much of its history, escaped some of the pathologies that you describe so well in this book. The book, as you said, is uh, a decade old, but uh, it feels like uh, a century 
has gone by in terms of events and how the world has changed. And I think that the book was uh, quite prescient in anticipating uh, some of the stuff that happened afterward. In one of the chapters of my book is called Time for Populism. And I end the chapter, if I remember correctly, saying that populism is inevitable. The question is, which form it will take? And I think that, unfortunately, it manifested in not particularly pleasant forms since the book was written. But I think that that, to me, is the unique feature of the United States that maintain a right balance between democracy and capitalism. Right. And there seems to be, among the popular conception, this convergence in beliefs around whether someone is pro-market or pro-business. It's one said that what's good for General Motors is good for America. I think maybe a couple of years ago, a couple of decades ago, it might have been what's good for Goldman Sachs is good for America. But why is it that people tend to conflate what is good for the market economy with what is good for business? And it does seem that you see a lot more of this in countries like Italy. Here in the U.S., I think that you can still maintain some distinction differences. There are people that are pro-market and not pro-business and vice versa. But certainly see in countries like Italy, the pro-market folks and the pro-business folks seem to be allied with one another and find themselves in the same camp by default. Why is it that people tend to mix these things up? I think that by and large is how strong the totally anti-business group is. So if you have 30, 40, even 50 or 60% of the population who has a really rooted anti-business feeling, then distinguishing between being pro-market and pro-business is besides the point, because the threat of basically seeing capitalism overturn is too strong. And it's only when you see the difference between uh, the people who are defending a principle and the, the people who are just defending their own particular privilege. And I think that that's a big distinction. Right. I think this distinction comes to play, particularly when we think about antitrust. When we look, go back to the trust-busting days of the late 19th century, early 20th century, right? You know, a lot of people point out that this, this breaking up of the large conglomerates didn't seem to be pro-consumer, right? And we look at sort of modern theories of antitrust, right? The motivation is supposed to be all about efficiency. And yet, that's not really, it wasn't really the original motivation behind antitrust, right? It was one of the motivation was not the only motivation. I think that to me, there is a very strong link between the American Revolution and uh, antitrust feeling. Very few people know, but uh, the famous Tea Party incident was driven not by a tax, but by some form of dumping that the East India Company was doing because that's a monopoly over the import of tea over the British Empire, including, of course, the United States at the time. And so that was a major source of tension with the locals that did not want that monopoly. And so I think the American Revolution starts as a very anti-monopoly revolution. And I think that tradition is really rooted in the American culture. And, and there is a beautiful passage by Senator John Sherman, which of course is the one that uh, wrote the Sherman Act, that say that if we don't tolerate a king in the political realm, we will never tolerate a king over the sales of the necessities of life. So that there is a one-to-one -one mapping between a democracy 
in a more fragmented economic uh, structure. And one reason, an important reason, is of course that we think as economists, and, uh, and I think the evidence is supportive, that uh, more fragmented economists will lead to better conditions for consumers. However, I think there is a tradition that was definitely present in the original antitrust doctrines, but got shut in the 70s when uh, the consumer welfare approach became uh, dominant in antitrust, which is the fact that fragmentation is also a guarantee of political freedom. And that uh, freedom of choice, first of all, and second, of political freedom, that you cannot have a, a world in which uh, you have only one producer, even if this producer by accident were to offer the best possible price for everybody, will not be, be a free society. And I always use as a paradox and say, if everybody was an employee of Amazon, could the United States be a democracy? And of course, the answer is no. Now, of course, it's a paradox because it's hard to imagine that everybody, but we're slowly going there. So we're certainly closer than we were 10 years ago. So I think that the risk is real and it's something that we need to be sure to watch against, even if it doesn't fit nicely in the traditional box of the antitrust as conceived in the 1970s. So you're at the University of Chicago, and I was trained in the University of Chicago School of Law and Economics to a large extent. And it seems like that approach, it's kind of a partial equilibrium approach, right? It sort of says that the economic sector is not going to feed back into the, to the political sector. The political arrangements held constant. And then when we think about industrial organization, then we should be thinking in terms of welfare maximization within that political regime. But I think what you're highlighting is that there there is a feedback loop and that the the industrial organization of the economy is going to ultimately, you know, feed back into the formation of the legal and regulatory regime going forward. So is that a failure in the approach that economists have taken? Is it out of convenience or why would we not think through the feedback loops? I've always thought of antitrust law as an extension of constitutional law, right? As a way of continuing to, it's a supplement to the constitution in terms of creating checks and balances. It's a very interesting question. I don't think it's because they didn't think about the feedback loop or the impact of the economics on politics, because Joe Stigler is famous for his regulatory capture theory, which is exactly how companies distort regulation to their own advantage. So, and he wrote that in 1971, so in the middle of this Chicago antitrust revolution. So it's hard to imagine that they didn't think that they, this loop existed. And so I think a more reasonable thing is in two direct dimensions. Number one, their major concern was the administrability of antitrust by relatively unsophisticated judges. And so I think that it is true that uh, by the late 60s, the antitrust was trying to achieve uh, too many objectives. And if you have too many objectives and you give this in the hands of a judge who is not that sophisticated, the risk that he's going to pick and choose the objective to follow depending on his preferences or her preferences, I think is pretty serious. So the first concern that they had was we need to develop something that actually is predictable. Okay. And they did. In that sense, they built on the enormous developments that microeconomic theory had done since 1890. The first antitrust statute was written by accident the first year that the principle 
of economics of Marshall was published. So since then, moved to the 1970s, I think that the macroeconomic theory had made enormous progress and became a much more precise science. And they were excited about the success of this new science and said, we should really rely on this science because it's going to be precise. And yes, we are going to give up other elements. But honestly, I think that if you look at the world as of 1960 and early 1970s, it was so different than it is today that the consideration we have today probably was absent or was so remote. Because remember, in 1971, Lewis Powell writes the famous Powell memo, where saying the world of intellectuals being dominated by anti-business people, we need to fight back. And in the 70s, Mike Jensen writes a couple of papers, not the famous one with Meckley, but some other less famous paper, saying that the business as we know is finished because there's so much regulation, there's so much overwhelming mm. of the state over the economy that there's no chance. So from that perspective, really thinking that business was too powerful is like, you must be joking, right? And, and it was not a major consideration. Now, fast forward 50 years later, I think the world has changed a lot. And what used to be a second order consideration today is a first order consideration. And by the way, I have a big uh, proponent of the fact that uh, as economists, we should take the history of economic uh, thoughts as such, so as a continuous evolution and progress and not just religion that remains fixed. Because even the great mind uh, of Chicago changed their opinion. Uh, very few people know, but in 1952, George Stigler wrote a piece saying, titled The Trouble with Big Business. And he said that breaking up this business is not only the right program, it's also the conservative program. And there was a, wait a minute, what is conservative about breaking up big business? He said, oh, because the alternative is much more state intrusion. So it's much better to break it up and let it develop rather than adding a bureaucrat intermingling with every business decision you make. So what I'm saying is these concerns go up and down as a function of the surrounding economy. And I think that the emergence of the Chicago Antitrust School occur at a time in which the power was solidly in the hands of the state where antitrust was extremely strong and probably even too strong to some extent. And the problem is not what they said back then, is that that has been taken as a gospel and never updated over the years when the situation surrounding us changed dramatically. I think you mentioned in the book that it was during the Reagan years that the kind of conceptual distinction between being pro-market and, and pro-business kind of dissolved Right. Prior to that, there were people who were pro-business and the people who were pro-market were inherently suspicious of them to some degree. And then during the Reagan years, this alliance took place and we're still living in that world to some degree, aren't we? Yeah, I think that actually it's more that the people that were anti-business embrace business. And with these two things took place, once is, as all the new fights, they got a bit too excited and they miss the potential downfall in business. And two, they lifted a balance because a lot of more conservative or pro-business people on the right were afraid of being too much in bed with business because somebody was criticizing on the other end. And at the end of the day, we know that this is not particularly popular with average Joe. So in a democracy, it's not a very successful strategy. Unless 
we both played and we collude on not talking about it. Okay. And then everybody does it, but nobody campaigned against him because it is our little secret that yes, we fight each other on abortion, but when it comes to business, we are all running to get the money from business before the other does. And so we're not going to fight shaming you that you are in the pocket of business because I am more and vice versa. That's, I think, is the equilibrium that took place for many years in America. Now, this book came out in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. So I think it was with the financial crisis fresh in everyone's mind and all of the bailouts of all the financial institutions, I, I think it was fairly easy to convince people that we lived in a new era of crony capitalism or a particularly American form of crony capitalism. What do you mean by that? And do you think that has just gotten worse since the, the writing of this book? So the easy answer to the second question is yes, much, much worse. And I think that to me, the sign is how important is your relation with the government in the business you're doing. And in the old days, Microsoft did not have a lobby office until actually the antitrust case came about in the late 90s. So for what, almost 20 years developed in Seattle without having any relationship with Washington. Today, you have startups that they develop uh, their lobbying strategy before they develop their market strategy. It's unbelievable. And part of is inevitable because the government plays such a big role in the economy that it's hard to live without it. But the second is, this is a bit of an equilibrium because I distinguish in the book and also in reality in between the lobbying that is to get the government off my back and then the lobbying that is to get the government in my pocket. And I think that uh, we moved to a world in which uh, people were hiring a lobbyist to get the government off their back to a world in which they lobbied to capture the government. And then, so if you and I compete and you go down that strategy, I have no choice but to go down the strategy. Mm -hmm. And so there's a high complementarity in economic terms. And that's where we see switching of the world. It is quite unbelievable how fast the world changed. So I saw recently, for example, the statistics of how many senators and congressmen were going to become lobbyists after they retired. In a decade, it went from, I go by memory, about 20% to 70% or something like this. And 70%, most of the people who retire are either dead or about to die or sick. Or, and so if you take them out, basically every breathing body that is not in Congress is on the other side lobbying and become like completely vertically integrated. In fact, one of my favorite lines that actually came to me after I wrote the book, so it's not in the book, but made me persona non grata in a bunch of places that don't have any sense of humor. But I said that the Berlusconi government was a vertically integrated version of the U.S. government. Why? Because the, when Berlusconi was in power, his ministries were actually his own employees. So there wasn't any arm's length transaction. He was running the country with his lawyer being Minister of Justice and his days with so it's unbelievably, and his employees being Ministry of Telecommunication, that he was running a TV business, it was really vertically integrated. In the United States, there is this decency that you resign from Goldman Sachs the minute before you join the U.S. government, and then you return to Goldman Sachs or Citigroup or whatever the minute after 
you step that down from government. At least there is this uh, very Puritan appearance of correction, but the substance is not that different. And I think that the reason why I started to sound the alarm before most people is precisely because my Italian background helped me see things more clearly. I think that uh, with all the criticism I have of Italy, Italy is much more open to criticizing itself. And so we discuss these things openly, and it's very hard, number one, not to see them. And number two, when you see them, is very hard not to see it in somebody else. In the sense, if you understand that uh, Berlusconi has so much power because besides many policies is beholden to him, then you say, oh, I understand that some might not be strictly employees, but if I just stop, step down by Goldman, and by the way, Goldman gave me a special bonus if I joined the administration. And I know that once I retire, my livelihood and my friendship and my everything depends on the same circle of people. Is it really so different? Well, if we think of investing and rent-seeking as a substitute for investing in the creation of value, right? If your claim is true that you can generate quite a bit of profit by investing in rent-seeking relative to the creation of value, then shouldn't we see that show up in terms of expenditures, right? In terms of actual, what we might think of as investment in rent-seeking. And yet when we look at the numbers, these numbers invested in lobbying, maybe there are a couple billion dollars here and a couple billion dollars there. I mean, these are smaller than the R&D budget of a typical large industrial company. So for the entire country, it adds up to less than probably the R&D budget of Google. So how shouldn't they be investing a whole lot more? Or is it just that there's just, because if there's this fantastic ROI right, on lobbying, then, you know, why, aren't, why doesn't everybody double their lobbying effort or quadruple their lobbying effort? So uh, you're absolutely right. One of my favorite lines is the lobbying budget of Google, of course, is smaller than the budget in IND because they have an enormous amount in ID, but it's probably smaller. I never checked the actual number. It's smaller than the budget in their cafeteria because they offer such a lavish service in the cafeteria yeah. that uh, I think is more than that. And I think that's one of the problem of the research in this area, because to some extent, what you see is what really doesn't matter, because the secret of succeeding is not showing. And first of all, understanding the obvious that much lobbying takes form in other ways that are not classified lobbying. In fact, there is a research showing that maybe 50% showing, but you don't really see the time that the CEO spend in Washington talking with the right people or the decisions that are made to please somebody and the people call that are very indirect. And the most indirect they are, the most valuable they are because it doesn't leave any trace. And uh, that's the kind of things that uh, are highly distortive. And we don't see that, but it doesn't mean they're not there. And I think that, uh, again, to lobby successfully, this is the important point. Lobby successfully is not just to write a check. Ironically, and I want to be very clear, I'm the last one to justify bribes. But ironically, the bribes in which you arrive with a bag full of green is more equalizing than everything else because you can be whoever. You can come from a foreign country. You can be of different race. You cannot speak English, but you are... Dollars are as good as my dollars, right? It's the, like slotting allowances, right? That would just be like slotting allowances or payola. Exactly. On the other hand, if we cannot pay, but I have to use my influence, then it's a bit like the story we learn of who was Sandy Will and who was that Frank Quattrone, I think, was that analyst for Citigroup. 
and had to hype an IPO. But in exchange, I wanted the kid admitted to a very fancy school in New York. And so that is the kind of stuff that money cannot buy. You cannot just show up with a check and walk your way through. They actually look down at you like you are a parvenu, we say in French, somebody that doesn't know where you live in the world. You have to do it, but you have to do it with class, which means you have to have the right connection. That's the worst possible form because it's really entrenching the incumbent and preventing a more dynamic economy. You talk in the book a lot about these public-private partnerships, and you talk a bit about these sort of corporate handouts or corporate welfare. That too is not a huge number, right? I would suspect that the bigger impact that you would have with your rent seeking is some change in the regulation or some change in the law, which would impact your profitability, but wouldn't necessarily require a specific outlay that shows up on the government budget, right? First of all, I think that the outlays are not trivial, especially every time there is a crisis, including COVID. But you are right, and that's the reason why in my research after the book, I focus on other things like, for example, competition. So I actually investigated the solar phone industry. And the amazing thing is that if you go to Europe, the quality of the phone is probably better than the United States, but it costs much, much less. Okay. And so I did a back of the envelope calculation, which is the difference between what we pay here and what people pay in Germany or Denmark. So I'm not talking about underdeveloped country with bad, I'm talking about the tip top. And if you aggregate number of consumer, long story short, et cetera, it comes down to 50 billion a year, 50 billion a year that goes from the pocket of consumers to the pockets of basically Verizon and AT&T, because those are the two. Now, when I presented it the first time, one of my colleagues laughed at me, thinking that I had made a mistake. And so anything can happen. So I immediately went back to the board and looked at the data. And actually, I noticed the following interesting factoid. So you take uh, the market capitalization. This was done a few years ago, but... I think it probably is 10 to 2. You take the market capitalization of AT&T and Verizon and you subtract the book value of assets. So what they show, and at least according to one theory, the Tobin's Q theory, is that the difference between the two is the capitalized return on upbuilder profits. So I said, okay, if I capitalize this 15 billion, this is cash flow, so you have to take taxes, blah, 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 but 50 billions in perpetuity at, let's say, a 10% discount rate, you end up with a very a number that is very close, actually, to this extra capitalization. And then I showed to my colleague that with a little bit of regret, he had to admit that I was right. That even he, and this is somebody who knows the number very well, even he was not aware. So this is the big thing that we don't talk about, but actually make a gigantic difference. And, and the other funny thing is that I look at the cost to people. So imagine that is not exactly right, but imagine that everybody has a cell phone. Okay. So you take the bottom half of the population. So half of that 50 billion is paid by the bottom half of the population, so 25 billion. So if you compare the cell phone tax, because that's what it amounts to, where the taxes that the bottom half of the population pay to the government is actually almost the same over the uh, magnitude. 
So the, the cell phone tax is big. And of course, now you go around and you see all the activities that AT&T does, all the sponsorship, that's peanuts, but that's part of contributing to maintaining uh, that. And, and this was before T-Mobile merged with Sprint. I fear that the problem is even worse afterward. So when lawmakers are trying to design legislation, right, they're basically allocating scarce resources in some way. And isn't this just a market-like mechanism, right, where these players reveal their willingness to pay in the lobbying marketplace as opposed to the marketplace marketplace? And shouldn't that lead to some kind of efficiency? I mean, what would be the alternative to, to let the voters speak? Would kind of maximizing one's support among the voters lead to more efficient outcomes? You must be a student of Gary Becker because Gary Becker had a model of lobbying that say exactly that, that everybody is on equal footing and so eventually this will lead to efficiency and et cetera. I think it's a little bit of a, a Panglossian view of the world because as I said, not everybody is in the same position to lobby. And in addition, many of these choices are not done by the legislator. They're done by the regulator, and these regulators straight go to war for the industry afterward. You know, one of the fun things in this paper that is actually forthcoming now, but with a colleague I have on the political economy of the telecommunication market, we spent time looking at politicians that went into the cell phone industry afterward. And there are a lot. And I remember one is, I think, was the uh, important Canadian minister that uh, he gave a license to a cell phone uh, company, and then surprise, surprise, when he retired from politics, he became the chairman of that company and is a, a very effective revolving door policy that is very hard to stop for you and I. And I think that when Trump in 2016 was campaigning and drained the swamp, he was touching a real feeling in people because people are upset, deeply upset by that. Now, when he governed, he seems to have empowered the crocodile rather than drain the swamp. But I think that the idea was clearly popular. And this is one of the few ideas that is very bipartisan. I see, I've seen statistics that it doesn't really matter whether you are a Republican or Democrat. Since you are sensitive maybe of the way it is presented. If you use certain code word, then you're triggered more or less. But if you're saying that you are concerned by this, I think everybody's concerned. Well, I was throwing up a bit of a, a straw man there, but I think because I think your critique runs a little bit deeper than the way you've just articulated it, right? So if we think about, imagine these regulators and these lawmakers are really honestly just trying to do the best they can do, right? Their information sources are limited and their information sources are skewed, right? Doctors who are doing everything they can to help a patient, right? Their information comes primarily from the pharmaceutical companies, right? So if the legislators and the regulators, even if they're relying entirely on experts, the experts themselves may be tainted in some way. And again, it may not be through outright venality, but it, it's really something that's it's a little bit more subtle. And I think you talk about that in your book. How has expertise helped to feed this crony capitalism? So one point that has not received much attention since the book, and you will understand the reason why, is I pointed out that not only there is the risk of uh, a regulatory capture, which is a very known phenomenon, but I said for the exact same reasons, there is a risk of expert capture or academic capture. After all, as researchers, we, number one, depend on a lot of information and especially these days, data from the industry. And there are a lot of career opportunities in the industry. And uh, the temptation to be 
more complacent or at least not blow the whistle when we see something wrong, I think is pretty strong. And we end up facilitating agreement that are not very competitive and don't benefit society at large. So I think that we do share our own responsibility. And as you said correctly, it's a combination of a bit maybe interest in money, but also need to be relevant, to have access to data, and be part of the right clubs. One aspect that I did not understand until after probably wrote this book, but this super, super powerful is the way intellectual circles use groups and group dynamic to isolate dissenters. So what you're trying to do is if you really make a criticism that is really dangerous, then you are immediately labeled something that is unacceptable. And then you can be labeled in the old days was a communist or a fascist or a radical. You pick the name that you dislike. And I think that uh, this strategy works particularly well when there is very strong orthodoxy. And then, of course, outside of the orthodoxy, most of the people outside tend to be kind of buffoon. And so it's very easy to, if you try to deviate a bit, to paint you as a buffoon. So everybody is afraid to be a buffoon, and the result is they don't challenge the status quo. And I experienced this firsthand in Europe because I am somebody that raised some criticism uh, the way Italy has been treated inside the Euro and the benefits of the Euro for Italy and so on and so forth. And in Europe in general, but particularly in Italy, I don't know who, but the establishment succeeded in passing this line between if you're a serious economist, you believe in the Euro, and if you're a buffoon, you don't believe it, okay? And of course, I can easily point out of buffoons who are not serious economists who don't believe in the Euro, and I can point out to many famous economists who believe in the Euro, but the two is not, correlation is not causation, and you cannot categorize all of this. But this has been used very effectively to isolate any person dissenting. And they hated me in particular because I cannot easily be classified as a buffoon. And I wasn't particularly in favor of the Euro. They did everything possible to undermine my credibility, including a, a newspaper wrote a centerfold page. You know, when you have a centerfold, an entire page mm -hmm. with this uh, science fiction story in which I was appointed Minister of uh, Treasury in Italy, and in the middle of the night, I would pull out of the Euro. And this is the most uh, infamous form of character assassination because you can't reply to uh, science fiction, but it's to create some fear. Uh, first of all, I want to record say that doing that cold turkey like this would be devastating for Italy. So I'm not stupid, but in spite of that, they did that. Why? To basically put it in my place. And I think that this strategy works very well and is not unique to Italy. Again, in Italy, they do it more overtly, so it's easy to see. But then once you see in Italy, you realize it takes place in the United States too. But you also mentioned in the book that the greater the consensus, the greater the reward for toppling that, that consensus, right? In a well-functioning kind of academic marketplace. And you praise the American academic marketplace as an exemplar of that kind of place where you can actually challenge things and so forth. Do you think that, is that changing in any way? Do you still have that same faith in the American academic marketplace? I have a little bit less faith for what happened in the last 10 years or so. I have seen 
a reluctance to look at the data when the data don't go your way. And I think that's a, a serious problem. Now, I'm very fortunate because I am a faculty at Chicago, and Chicago has been really a lighthouse in this debate and is so different from every other place in the face of Earth. And I hope it will remain this way after Bob Zimmer, who was really the pillar of this strategy, stepped down as president. But I think that overall, not looking at my own personal life, because I think I'm very fortunate, but I think about the life of other people, particularly younger colleagues in other institutions. The message you get is that certain findings are not appreciated and you don't even look for that. And I think that the beauty, in my view of academia, is precisely what you pointed out, is that there is a reward to topple the dominant view. And it comes with a big price, not monetary, but in terms of reputation. And that is what generates the dynamics of academia. But uh, again, I'm overusing my Italian experience, but I grew up in Padua and Padua is famous as a university place because it was at the forefront of medicine. The discovery of the fallopian tube was done in Padua by a guy called Fallopian. And the discovery of the circulation of the blood was done by Andrea Vesali, who was not Italian, was Belgian, but he studied in Padua and I kept keep going. Now, why did they do that before everybody else? Because the Republic of Venice was allowing, was closing an eye on the fact that in Padua, they were dissecting cadavers, which by the standard of the Catholic religion at the time was a crime. And in fact, if you go to Padua, you have to visit, there is an anatomy room of the time with a trick that if you open, the table opens up so that the body can fall into the river. And so the police doesn't find the body. Mm -hmm. But so that, that was the spirit of innovation at the time. You could go against the religion and, and still find your point and create and, and diffuse and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, with the Counter-Reformation, the Inquisition was pretty heavy-handed. And after that, Padua was not in the map for top universities. And Italy was not in the map for top creation. And the great innovation, surprise, surprise, moved to the Netherlands, to England to the United States of America, where people discover tolerance for ideas that we don't like. Well, you mentioned the book, the, the famous Chicago Economics Workshop, and I remember reading, I think it was in George Stigler's memoir about how when Ronald Coase went there to present his theory of externalities and the entire group disagreed at the beginning of the talk, and then by the end of the talk, they had all completely flipped. And I always thought of that as sort of the ultimate example of open-mindedness because they had started off so dogmatically opposed, but were convinced over time through argumentation. Do you see that as a model for education at all levels? You, you talk a bit about the distinction between uh, American primary and secondary education as opposed to education outside of the U.S. And on the one hand, you describe it as being somewhat inferior in terms of teaching skills due in part to the rent-seeking of various teacher unions, but you also then talk about how it's, it's better in many ways because it teaches the children to question authority to, to some degree and to be more, more open-minded. And I was uh, pleased to see that you went to Montessori school. I think if I surveyed the folks who I've had on this podcast, I think that the preponderance of Montessori school pupils would be statistically significantly different from the population baseline. Yes, I'm a Montessori alumnus and very proud of being one. It is definitely true that at least the school I did in Italy in the early part was still very doctrinary in the way it was teaching. 
but also for a very simple reason that only with age I understood. At the end of second grade, I had to do an exam. And in the exam, I had to prove that I knew how to read and do the four operations, including the divisions with all the, and of course, by hand, at the time, there was no calculator. Now, first of all, none of my kids would have been able to pass that exam at the end of second grade because you don't train for that. But the most important part is that exam was a leftover of the time that was in the past, but not that much in the past, where people were stopping a second grade in terms of education. Okay? Now, I want to digest that because you don't remember a time in the United States, you don't remember your great-grandfather, it's just, it's just where they stopped, the mandatory schooling stopped at second grade. Okay? And I remember when I got my, in fifth grade, they had another exam, so I did the exam in fifth grade, and I remember that at the time, they were passing a law that in order to have a shop, a license to have a shop, you had to have at least the fifth grade degree. And that was binding for some people. So when I was a kid, there were people that having a shop that had only the second grade degree. And so the school was designed to give you the maximum amount of notion in the shortest time possible, so that it was not designed to socialize you, learn how to do things, etc. It completely different philosophy. And today, when you send the kids to an American school, thank God you, you have 12 years ahead of you. So if, even if you don't know how to do the division by the end of the second year, it's more important you learn to interact with your peers than to do the second division. So I think that's a benefit of being a developed country, the benefit of a country that... Um, pioneer universal education at a high level for a lot of people. Going back to the issue of democracy, I think that the United States, and of course, there is the, the terrible slavery and the consequences of slavery in the South, so I'm not saying that this is universal, but the fact that there was a, at least male universal suffrage for white people to massive education, again, for white, most of a white male, but very early on. And many of the rules that led to universal uh, education up to high school were in the teens. And so one of the things I mentioned in the book, which I think is very important and very underappreciated, is by the end of World War II, the United States was not only the winning power, was not only the country with the best technology in the world, was the country with the by far best educated workforce in the world. Italy had massive amount of people who were still in literature at the end of World War II, and not to mention countries in other parts of the world. And the United States had, if I remember correctly, 42 or 43% of the population with a high school degree. That is like head and shoulder above that. Now, since then, we have lost this primacy, and part of it is not our fault, is that the other caught up. Part of it, of course, is our fault, but I think it's, it's a combination of the two. Now, unlike many economists, you spend a lot of time thinking about things like trust and religion and culture and civic capital, and you look at those things as causes not only of the good things, but also of the bad things that you talk about. And certainly a culture of, say, crony capitalism or nepotism, right, those sorts of institutions, they really couldn't survive without kind of a cultural support or cultural endorsement, right? And it's this cultural kind of support or accommodation, which leads to, in many ways, path-dependent lock-in. And you offer some proposals that are all about changing norms and so forth. So 
Have norms changed in the United States? Have we become more tolerant of kind of corporate welfare? Have we become more more tolerant of a move towards more rent-seeking or more crony capitalism? Yes. i give you an example. I recently watched a fantastic play by Arthur Miller, All My Sons. I don't know if you know the play, but it's, it's a story for the listeners who might not know is a story that is based on a true fact of, I think, a daughter reporting to the authority, the father was producing passport planes during World War II, and those parts were defective and some pilots died. And the daughter reported the, the father to the authority as mm-hmm. basically a criminal because that's, uh, he knew that uh, this would be defective and the, the, the pilots would die, so uh, by all means was criminal. Now, that made me think a lot, because as all the great Greek tragedies of the world, there is this tension between two fundamental values, your family attachment and your sense of community for the country. And what stood up to me is that uh, wasn't even that tragic in the play, because at the time, and after Miller wrote shortly after World War II, or maybe even wrote uh, during the war, there was this sense of community that you belong and so on and so forth. And so, yes, there was the family, but also the community was equally important. Now, I can tell you for sure that in Italy, very few people will do that. And in part, it's because the family is much stronger. It's not only that the sense of community is smaller, but the family is much stronger. In part, is the sense of community is, is not very strong. But I would like to have a question. Unfortunately, people probably don't answer honestly in this, but I asked you to do some introspection. How many people will know today that will do that to their spouse, their kid, their father, whatever? And I think very few. I think that the sense of community that was a crucial element of the American fabric has really melted down. And not every sense of community is positive. I recently visited visited here the city of Salem, the one of the famous witch hunt, and clearly that sense of community was a bit too strong. <laughs> and, uh, the, so there are some side effects, but I think the United States was built on those small communities with a very so- a strong sense of city capital, and I think that has by and large disappeared. And you argue that so shaming is some tool that, that may even be more effective than legislation, right? Some kind of informal sanction might be more powerful than a formal sanction. And you actually propose that there be some kind of norms around the practice of lobbying. And when you talked about that, it made me think about being a lawyer, right? So when you're a lawyer, you have a duty to the client and then you have a duty to the court. And it's actually formalized because you can lose your license if you lean too too far in favor of the client. Would it make sense to professionalize the lobbying profession, to make it into something where you get a license? And then I know that you can't prohibit free speech of corporations for advertising and so forth. How could we practically enforce some kind of social norm around corporate lobbying? First of all, my first step will be disclosure. Today, we know a little bit some of the money that technically is registered as lobbying, but we don't know the donations. We don't know all the other ways in which companies spend our money, okay? So the first one is will be really some disclosure. The second is I think that these days we shame individuals for everything, even for the you not capitalizing the B in black. And I think that we should take a step back and focus on 
what is really important. And certainly, not being a racist is very important. Now, whether the capitalization of the letter B is the best indicator and the one that you should be hanged for, it seems a bit more like a witch hunt, going back to Salem, that really a substance. I'm not in favor of a witch hunt or very aggressive cancel culture, but the moral this day, after all, we all say so we don't do certain things. Okay. And I think that we need to refocus on what are those things that we don't do. And I remember distinctively when I was studying at MIT, one of my classmates got married the 30th of December. And my advisor, who was a professor of public finance, said, oh, but this is silly because there's a penalty tax. You should marry at least uh, two days later because you save on the penalty tax for a year. A typical. And the guy basically admitted to uh, that he will miss report for a year. Okay. And the look that my advisor gave to him was like, you don't want to do that. It's just, there was a sense of shame. It was not mm-hmm. publicly exposed to the humiliation, but was mm-hmm. a person with authority that said, you don't do certain things. Okay. And then that carries to me an enormous weight. Now you go to some uh, country clubs or golf clubs, etc., and people brag about how much taxes they have evaded, and there is no sense of shaming. And that's the shaming I'm discussing, is the people that say, look, it's not cool with me. Couldn't shareholder voice play a role here? So, you know, we, we've seen the rise of ESG investing, and, you know, certainly investors care about what their companies are doing, whether it's lobbying or whether it's polluting or promoting the production of carbon gas and so forth. Would it make more sense to to give more power to shareholders? I know corporate governance has really been your primary interest for decades. Does it make more sense to, to take power away from executives? Because the other folks w- would argue, I, I interviewed Colin Mayer just recently, and, and he would argue that if you want corporations to do more good and behave more ethically, then you actually have to insulate the managers from the preferences of the, of the investors. And I guess his belief is that investors are interested in profit more than anything else. It's very interesting because I think that Colin Meyer and I have the same ultimate objective, but they have very two different philosophy. I believe that you should let people decide and advise them, post, but at the end of the day, I strongly believe in democracy at the political level and also the conflict level. And, uh, I don't want to put too much in his mouth, but I do believe that he has a sense of, in the best sense of the word, of aristocracy, of I know I'm a philosopher king, I know what is the right thing, very platonic, I know what is the right thing, and I need to force it over the head of people who don't understand because they are not educated enough, they're not smart enough. And so I think he sees that the executives as this platonic philosopher that push the right agenda over this rioting people who don't know any better. And I think that you should let the people decide. And to the point of the shareholders, I actually think that in today's society, we don't ask enough the shareholders, which eventually it's us with our pension fund, et cetera, what we want. Because at the end of the day, it is our money at stake. And many of us are willing to sacrifice a bit of our money for a better society, but certainly I'm very willing to sacrifice your money for a better society. So I think that if my money is not at stake, I am willing to do other things. Now, 
If you start from the perspective that the world is going to end tomorrow if we don't do what he says, then uh, you take any precaution is justified. But this is part of my, again, that's one of the reasons why I believe very much in culture and history is because I feel that the culture and history I grew up with determine a lot the way I think. Because of the country I come from, I am very fearful of somebody who comes around and say, I need to take control because we are in a dangerous situation and I know better. And so let me rule and I will do things for you. Last time we did let this happen, we ended up defeating the war. So, Well, you mentioned that the business schools have a powerful role to play when it comes to promotion of good managerial behavior and potentially maybe restraint when it comes to rent-seeking and so forth. Do you think business schools do a good enough job when it comes to promoting good behavior and maybe fostering these social norms that you talk about? We do have ethics classes. We do have all sorts of co-curricular sort of sensitivity, you know, trainings and so forth. So are we directing our efforts in the wrong places or is it just that we're not investing enough in the promotion of solid social norms? I think we don't invest enough. I think that unfortunately, ethic classes are just like confession in the Catholic religion. And I was raised Catholic is a way to dump all your sins and start sinning the next day. And I think that if we want to change the, the culture of business, we need to teach ethics in finance classes, in marketing classes, in production classes, not separately from, because otherwise the students immediately perceive a pecking order and there are the sophisticated, good professor, and then there are the other one that just bring a facade of. And, and what is funny is that since the book was written, business school now are very much in the business of pressuring and using social pressure for a lot of things. Like today, it's inconceivable to have a panel without a woman in the panel which it's an excellent thing, I'm not disputing, but it's not that we don't use social pressure. We use social pressure massively. But, for example, there is no rule to say, oh, if you are a convicted felon, you should not be on the board of a business school, for example. I think that nobody checks that and uh, nobody enforces that. If you have enough money, we close one and even two eyes. I think that's the kind of thing that I was trying to say. Since the publication of this book, a lot's happened. And in particular, we did see this rise of populism that you predicted, but wasn't quite the populism that you were hoping for, I think. Is there any hope for the rescuing of populism? Is there any hope for a pro-market populism? We certainly see right now in the new Brandeis school of antitrust, but this seems to be motivated more by a suspicion of business than a, a faith in markets. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that there isn't like much faith in market uh, in either form of populist, either very left-leaning or right-leaning. What has happened since that book that made life more difficult, in my view, is that the conversation between different sides of the debate has broken down. And now we are into basically demoralizing the opponent in a way that makes it very difficult to have a conversation. And so I think that I actually purposely withdrew from much of the more public stance is because I don't belong to any of the two extremes and I don't like to play that game. And 
I don't find it particularly useful. I, unfortunately, I, I don't have any clever idea to fix the problem, but I think that this is, to me in this moment, the, the biggest problem is that we don't talk to each other. And even if we don't understand each other, it's, it's very rare to see two opponents having a spirited debate because I'm not saying that we should all agree. In fact, the, the fun is when we don't agree, but at least we agree to have the same set of rules and not to insult each other every three words. Well, Luigi, thanks so much for joining me. We didn't even scratch the surface of what I think is really your most passionate interest, which is the financial markets. We didn't talk much about financial regulation. We really didn't talk much about the financial crisis. Perhaps we can do that another day, but I appreciate you joining me. We didn't get to talk also about how Stanford Business School offices differ from Booth Business School offices. That's probably my favorite example in the book, the one that I'm going to use over and over again. But I appreciate you joining me and let's hope to chat again sometime soon. It was a pleasure anytime. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.